0: Welcome to the Common Good Podcast. A conversation about the significance of place, eliminating economic isolation, and the structure of belonging. My name is Joey Taylor, and I'm the producer of the Common Good Podcast. For this week's episode, we'll hear the abundant community conversation between David Cayley, Peter Block, and John McKnight. Every couple of months, the Common Good Collective helps to produce these interactive conversations on Zoom, and they always contain music or poetry, small groups, and an exploration of a particular theme with a community practitioner. In this Abundant Community Conversation, John and Peter speak with David Cayley about Ivan Illich and his understanding of freedom and friendship. Peter begins by asking the initial question and David responds before turning it over to John.
1: The question, just to get started, which is a mixture of being personal and introducing all of us to Illich, they asked David and John, who have both been kind of interpreters of Illich, when did he first matter to you? Where were you? How were you? When were you? At what moment did all of a sudden
2: he kind of come to you? I was late on the scene, but okay, I'll begin. I was a young man, newly returned from two years living in northern Borneo with an organization called CUSO, which resembles the American Peace Corps, and somewhat bemused by my experiences there and by the whole idea of international development. And a talk that Illich had given in Chicago to a group of young Catholic volunteers bound for Mexico was like a an illumination. I was impressed by the clarity and how immediately it addressed the concerns that I felt. So probably at that moment in 19 19- 69 it would have been. The story goes on from there.
1: You were a participant in international development. That's true. And you returned with doubts about it. And so what he did was a framework for those doubts in a sense.
3: Absolutely. Yes. The most effective introduction to Yvonne was the first time that I met him. I was on the faculty of the National church urban training center. This was for clergy who were going to have urban parishes and different people who spent an afternoon or a morning with these clergy. And I had the morning in which I made a presentation on educational alternatives. And Yvonne had the afternoon and we met at lunch. And I had made a presentation of five ways that I thought we were beginning to see schools change and become a different kind of a force in the community. At lunch, Yvonne very kindly, gracefully said to me, I was so impressed by your five ways schools could be transformed. He said, but I do have a question. I wonder... Where you came by the curious idea that schools have something to do with education, I've never met people who thought that before. Well, that was just like a a punch to the stomach. And I knew exactly what he was saying. And I thought, this is the first person I've ever met who really had the kind of insight that I was moving toward. And so I think we walked together for the rest of his life. David, I'm sort of interested, as I think maybe many of the people who are joining us are, to know what it was in Illich's life as he matured that led him to have this uniquely radical view. Because I think a lot of us wonder, how do you take
2: that kind of a path? Well, I think he came to it. biographically, as, as he related briefly in the first radio series that you took part in, too, and that was published as Ivan Illich in Conversation, where he he relates the complete loss of the world in which he grew up in at, at, at the moment in which the German occupation of Austria was about to take place in 1938, and then following that, exile to Florence. So a kind of complete uprooting. And he said that he was ever afterwards a man who lived in a tent, who didn't have a home, who belonged deeply to the European tradition and to the Christian tradition, and particularly to the first millennium of that tradition, but yet felt cut off, uprooted, sent into exile. And I think that was probably the biographical root of of his ability to look deeper, if you like, question education rather than thinking of five ways schools might be changing or to question development which was a, a sacred absolutely sacred word at the time right so it was it was his bravery and clarity i think at a second level it, it obviously related to his faith and to the character of that faith which was something he almost spoke about directly but i think was evident he was rooted in an experience of I don't even want to say Christianity, but of incarnation that I think also guided him in seeing how the world looked from that perspective. So when he went to Puerto Rico in 1956, he initially had been a great supporter of schools and even had disgraced himself with his colleagues at the university by insisting that until the national law requiring so many years of primary schooling could be fulfilled. There should be no more funding to the university. Unpopular position. But he said it was within a year that he began to see that this was an irrational procedure and also to see that it was, as he said, a liturgical procedure. He could see religion written all over it. And so I think that was the unique vantage point he always brought. And he could imagine other paths for young Puerto Ricans while everyone else was mesmerized by schooling and could only conceive the alternative to schooling as misery, ignorance, illiteracy, and the rest. He focused.
3: focused on a great deal of criticism, but I'm wondering if you step back and he introduced a different way of understanding the meaning of freedom. I wonder if you could uh, speak to that a bit.
2: Well, I think he understood freedom in the first place. Maybe I could go to his interpretation of the parable of the Good Samaritan, which for him, a paradigm of the New Testament and central to the teaching that he did late in his life. And he said that this very familiar story, which I think I don't need to tell, I think maybe it will be known to most listeners, That this story had been interpreted through much of Christian history, that everyone took this story as illustrating an ought, how one ought to behave towards the neighbor. So you see someone in a ditch, take them to an inn. And he said, no, that isn't even the question that Jesus was asked. He was asked, who is the neighbor? How should I behave towards the neighbor? And he claimed that the answer was the opposite of an ought. It was the illustration of a call which could violate all decency and all convention because the Samaritans were the estranged people of northern Israel. There was a virtually an enemy relationship between jews and Samaria at that point. The Samaritans have that valence in other New Testament stories too. So this is an enemy who's passing by. Ivan used to like to say a Palestinian to give it some contemporary resonance, And he ought to ignore this guy, in short. Let his own people take care of him, right? He's, he's violating a boundary. And he violates it because he must, but because he feels called. He's moved by the plight of this other one, and that's why he cares for him. So it, it illustrates, Ivan says, the freedom to love where and when I am called to do so, beyond all boundary. But he at the same time recognizes that this is... Volatile, the most explosive teaching, because boundary contains right. He's a great preacher of boundaries throughout his work. It's always about limits, limits to education, limits to the book on medicine. Medical Nemesis was finally titled Limits to Medicine. So he's a man preaching limitation, community, and gender. He speaks of gender as an institution which prevents a community from outgrowing its proper size. But the Samaritan. Breaks the boundary. So he certainly sees freedom as relatedness, but he also sees it as governed by a call. And so the great operation of modernity, to him, accomplished initially through the church, because he, at the end of his life, understood that, he said, my hypothesis, that modernity can be studied as an extension of church history. A remarkable statement. So beginning with the church, the call becomes an ought it becomes a morality of rules. Uh, Sin, he says, is criminalized. So the sin, which is coldness, indifference, turning away, not answering the call, becomes an offense against a code. And he sees the modern world unfolding from that. So freedom for him is always the possibility to be in relation and to find out what's next, in a sense, from the other one, the one who I didn't expect the one who called me
0: at this point in the abundant community conversation peter sets up the breakout rooms he asks us to consider how we can be truly free by accepting the radical invitation to love beyond boundaries this is how he says it
1: in what way is the way john and david talking about it support your own radical nature That part of you that kind of feels like what's with me, outsider. And, you know, what gets stirred in you by the way they're describing what the village has meant to all of us.
0: Now, as we consider Peter's question, we'll listen to a rendition of Nina Simone's I Wished I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free by our very own Courtney Napier.
4: I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. I wish I could break all the chains holding me. I wish I could say all the things that I should say. Say them aloud, Say them clear for the whole wide world to hear. I wish I could share all the love that's in my heart. Remove all the bars that keep us apart. I wish I could know. You could know what it means to be me. Then you'll see and agree. That every man should be free. I wish I could give all I'm longing to give. I wish that I could do all the things that I can do. I wish that I could live like I'm longing to live. Though I'm way overdue, I'd be starting anew. I wish I could be like a bird in the sky. How sweet it would be if I found a fly. I soar on the sun. And look down at the sea. Then I sing, cause I know. Then I sing, cause I know. Yes, I sing, cause I know how it feels to be free.
0: Now, as we return to the conversation, Peter asks David to focus on education.
1: Be more explicit about the school question. I thought they're sold on the basis of freedom and democracy. I thought that was the whole idea for starting schools was to create citizenship and stuff. Could you say more about
2: how schools kind of embody the opposite? To get at that question, you have to understand That all his thought, I think, is about balance. Mm -hmm. That he developed the idea during the period when he and I think John often were in touch in the early 70s of paradox, what he called paradoxical counterproductivity. That Mm -hmm. is an institution which is good. He, He never spoke against schools as such. He had a language school at Cuernavaca, which was an extremely effective one, and I believe he was quite proud of it, and it was certainly their meal ticket. He didn't speak against schools. He spoke against monopoly, against what he called radical monopoly, that you are required to have a certain amount of school to do a job at which you have proven competence. Why would you be required to have schooling in addition to your proven competence? Those are socially required rituals. So, it was always against monopoly yeah. that he spoke, and, and above all, radical monopoly. And I, an idea that beautifully developed in a book called Disabling Professions, which John also wrote in along with Ivan and, and several others. That's where you see, I think, how political his thought was, yeah. right? That he basically claimed we have a, a very misleading map of political reality. Because it doesn't account for the professional power. It doesn't account for the school, the hospital, so that formal freedom may be there, but actually people are under the sway of various radical monopolies. That's beautiful. It's the compulsory
1: nature, the requirement.
2: Just to add one point, which is important to me, the the first chapter of Deschooling Society is called Why We Must Establish School." Now, everyone understands the word disestablish as relating to the First Amendment to the American Constitution, says that the state shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. So in asking for disestablishment, he was asking it to lose its halo, its uh, character as as a religious establishment, and just become a procedure like others that might have limited utility for certain people at certain times his books were almost
3: all criticisms. In that sense, they were about what not to do. I remember his saying to me one time that what I'm about is proscription, but never about prescription, never about what should be done. And I wonder if you could sort of elucidate the difference between those two stances and why he would have
2: that idea. Well, first of all, I'm I'm grateful to you for that remark that it was in the first Illich broadcast and that you related to me. And I find, think it's extremely clarifying. It basically is respect for freedom, right? It is respect for freedom. He's not going to prescribe, how would he know how this, how this community will develop? It bespeaks, first of all, a willingness to be in the moment, to trust what will happen between people and that something will emerge. If it is not constrained, if it is not predetermined, if it is not sent always on predetermined pathways. So to proscribe is to say, you know, under the regime of radical monopoly, you'll never be free. But it isn't to determine what freedom will be for this or that person or group or community at all. That's the, the biggest put down on the left was always, what's your solution? You've got to have a solution. You've got to have a plan. So he, he's a radical anarchist in that respect. But I would say it's easier to say he was a Christian, a man of faith. And he saw that planning was antagonistic to Messianic cult. It's easy to characterize
1: Illich as a man who was against something. And any time you're against something, then it becomes a funny conversation. Whereas, David, you and John seem to be giving your lives for Into building something. And maybe each of you could talk a little bit about having internalized Illich and gotten the alternative construct that he represented. And it wasn't really an argument against schools, it was an argument for people, maybe places where people could decide. Because when Illich ran his own school, everybody got to decide what they wanted to teach and what they wanted to learn. He did not send out a curriculum and say, come to Cuernavaca. So maybe each of you could talk about what what the implications or what after village we might not have
2: seen as constructed and possible. Well, as far as against is concerned, um, throughout the fifties and sixties, he was decidedly for what he called a new church. Now he didn't specify what that would look like, but he did imagine the communion meal as Protestants call it, becoming again, a meal Around a table with a lay presider, a whole book, a whole essay called "The Vanishing Clergyman" imagines a declericalized and renovated church. So he did put forward many positive ideas. He just didn't see it as within his competence to redesign society. I think as he got older, he centered
3: more on. And more on the word friendship and everything that it meant to him, that uh, he insisted that he were going someplace for a while, that he have a house where he could invite his friends. And I think it was often more important to have a place for his friends to be together than it was whatever he was teaching in some university. I felt that so strongly. I remember one time he said to me, you know, the only thing that I can say positively about modern technology has to do with airplanes. He said, I just want to let you know that an airplane allows me within eight hours to join you in person. So anytime you call, I'll be there. And it'll only be eight hours. And I just felt with all of the intellectual trappings (laughs) that came with him, the final way was the way of friendship, a table, (laughs) a glass of wine, some bread. And he literally insisted that be the center in, in his latter days of his life. So... If I think about him, I don't think at all about something negative. I think now always about the beauty of understanding what friendship means.
1: It's beautiful. You know, uh, in some ways, the world is headed back in his direction with low pocket neighborhoods, mm-hmm. front porch republics. COVID has been an awakening of a kind. and Maybe that's, David, why you're still so engaged is because you I don't know if do you see it? Do you see the world at all embracing or becoming more of that uh, unprescribed existence of freedom that he
2: represented. I, I see a parting of the ways. Overall development in Canada, let me just speak about what I know best, has, has moved towards a more controlled, mm-hmm. more compliant, more censored society. I would say a desperate Embrace of a new story about about the disease, but I do think that in other places it's a forcing house for community. It's a forcing house for friendship. It's it it's encouraging people who find themselves as heretics, if you like, to sustain one another and to build arcs against what appears to be a flood.
0: Thanks for listening. To learn more about Illich, check out David's book, Yvonne Illich, An Intellectual Journey. Also, be on the lookout for upcoming Abundant Community Conversations. The show notes contains everyone's bios and information, and you can find more information about the Common Good Collective at commongood.cc. This episode has been guest hosted and produced by me, Joey Taylor, and the music is from Jeff Gorman.